Well, good morning, Flatiron Church. It is good to be with you. My name is Brian. If you're new here, lead pastor and planter at Flatiron. And we are finding ourselves in the third week of our Revelation series. We have four total. And really what we've been doing is just looking at who gets to define God's church. Who gets the final word on what a good church is and what a good church should be? Who gets to call out what the church isn't doing right? And really, as we explored last week and the week before, what we've seen is Jesus has important words, not just for 2,000 years ago, but for us today. As we examine ourselves within Flatiron Church and as we look at how this church should best function, we've noticed that a lot of those kind of critiques that Jesus levied against those churches apply to us today. And this morning is no different. In fact, this morning, we're going to be looking at two churches, two examples. Uh, One of them, from the outside, it looks like it's dead uh, or or under duress, but inside it's thriving. And the other church, from the outside, it looks like it's just going bonkers, but on the inside, it's nearly dead. And it's a tale that's very common where you have something that is under fire or, or kind of looks like it's just the enemy's opposing it at every turn, but inside of it is the kernel of the gospel and it is strong and powerful. And the other church seemingly looks like it's doing great, but inside its bones are dead and decaying. So by way of illustration, how many of you guys have ever lifted a weight? I have to raise your hand. Gone to the gym? Maybe run a few steps away or towards the ice cream truck. Um, a couple years ago, I did a half marathon, and I remember when Melinda, I remember telling Melinda this, and she looked at me and she's like, "I know you're going to do this because you've already decided, but why? Why are you wanting to do a half marathon?" I was like, "I don't know." COVID's got me all locked up, and this was right around kind of like everyone was locked in. I was like, "I just need to get out of the house." So started doing that and, and started, you know, quickly learning, okay, you got to pace yourself. There's certain days you do certain types of runs, long runs, in and outs, fart licks, true word. And you're kind of working through things, trying to build up endurance. And one of the things that you're going to notice is that it's really kind of tension over time. That's how you develop things. That's how you develop your muscles. It's how you develop your lungs. If I was going to go today and run 13 miles or so, it wouldn't go so well. Because I'm not doing those long runs. I'm not, I don't have my cadence down. I don't have my breathing up. I don't have any of those things built over time. What ends up happening is oftentimes we view Scripture, we view the Christian walk, but we're not thinking it's a race. We're not thinking it's something that we have to prepare for. We're not thinking that what God calls you and has brought you to himself, he's now put you in a position, much like a race, that you have to train for, that you have to build up for. And so as I'm practicing this and and working towards it, it comes closer to the date. And because of all the COVID stuff that was going on, they actually canceled the race. And I said, I am not canceling the three or four or five months it took to practice this. And so I got Luke and Allie. If you don't know Luke, he's our drummer. If you don't know Allie, she sings sometimes, long blonde hair. Well, she's a runner and she's a collegiate runner, which means That half marathon was nothing to her. So I was like, hey, why don't you guys join me on this so I have somebody to run with? And we did. And we ran it out. And at the end of it, pushed far far harder than I ever would have on my own because I had people around me. And I'm telling you, that's the great example of what happens when we're looking at this battle of faith, when we're looking at how we're living our life out, how we're living this faith out. It's tension over time 
and it's best done in a group. So my goal today isn't necessarily to get you in the gym, although I'm not against that. But my goal today is for you to start seeing your walk is a lot like a collegiate athlete. Your life, how you discipline yourself, what you allow your mind to focus on, what you allow your heart to be captivated by, it's all going into the same pie. Are you going to be effective for the kingdom of God? And if that startles you, if that feels, oh, that's, I don't know, that sounds really weird, Brian, I'm just going to invite you to see what the text says. If you think I'm crazy, let's see what the text says. Here's the big idea. The greatest threat to a Christian isn't suffering. It's safety. And maybe I'll specify that. It's the idol of safety. It's this desire that thinks comforts is what the Lord has intended for us. And I think it's death to the soul. Where are you prioritizing today, right now, in your heart, if you're honest, where are you prioritizing comfort or safety over the mission that God's given you? For some of you, that mission is very clear and you just don't want to go. Or you're there, you just don't want to be here. For others of you, the mission is not defined. I don't know what God wants me to do with my life. How are you preparing? How are you training? Some of you are thinking, well, I'm old. I think I missed the mission. As long as you have breath in your lungs, you haven't missed the mission. And the mission's not done, I should say. There's something for you here today. And we're going to pick it up here by looking at the first church, the church of Sardis. I'm picking this up, chapter 3, verse 1. Paul's addressing this church. It's one of the seven. I'm, not, I'm sorry, John. John's addressing this church. Paul's usually addressing something. John's addressing the church, and he's effectively giving the words that Jesus has given him. So when you read this, this is Christ's words to this church. And to the angel of the church of Sardis write, again, chapter 3, verse 1, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Those seven stars are the seven angels over the seven churches. And the one who has them is Jesus. And he begins here. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your works, I have not found your works complete in my sight and the sight of my God. Here we are, Church of Sardis. And you're probably wondering, okay, well, this is interesting. This is the first time we don't really get a long preamble of what they're doing well. It's almost right in of here's what's wrong. Now, if you're noticing, he does say, I know your works. So there are works being done. Something's happening within this church. There's life seemingly on the outside. But he goes on to say, but inside you are dead. Pause with me. Here's how this tends to work itself out within churches or church cultures. Uh, churches are busy. They're, they're doing messages. They're working with charities. They're helping organize things. They're putting a lot of things together. And so if you're looking from the outside in or even on the inside in, you're going to notice, no, we're doing a lot of activities for Jesus. We're, we're really busy. Outwardly, we're looking prosperous. Maybe financially, we're doing fine. And we look at these as markers. And sometimes we'll even say, well, no, we're growing and, and people are meeting Jesus. And and, but how many baptisms have you done? Oh, we don't really talk about that. You know, you get to that moment of just doing the work, doing the activities. It looks alive, but on the outside, it's dead. This is akin to going to the gym. You've got weights around you, but you're not actually pumping anything of merit. You're just talking, just chatting. 
Recently, there's been a few of us from Flatiron that have started to gather some of the younger guys late at night, and we'd go to the gym just, just to kind of build community. And what I've noticed is that when you add people, you exponentially take more time. As in, what could have taken you 40 minutes to do now takes you two hours because I call it the Cliff Daly effect. He, he just he takes every conversation and boosts it. And that's the thing I love about him. It also <laughs> it makes the gym experience very long. But this is the thing. It can look like you're doing a lot of work, you're having a lot of fun, you're engaging in activities, and these aren't bad in and of themselves, but are you actually getting the mission of the church done? Are you actually, and that's the question we have before us, Flatiron, we're always asking, what exactly is our mission? Are, are we seeing it fulfilled? And, and here's our mission. We want to see people take their next step in seeking Jesus. And that necessitates that there's new people meeting Jesus. That necessitates that you and me are the primary evangelist, that we're going to be the ones that carry the message. But here's the thing. It's far too easy sometimes to find ourselves doing church and not being the church. Why do we do this? I've got, I've got a couple reasons. I'll put the first one on the board. I think there's the sin of safety that sometimes begins to cultivate within our heart, this idol of safety. The first thing that I write on there is that uh, church is somewhere we go, rather than churches, a people of God. Uh, the church is somewhere we go, idol, is, is effectively, hey, I come on Sunday, I, I give money, I serve on a team, aren't I good? And the issue about that is it's, it's seen as an activity that you can check off. It's seen as an activity you just come in, okay, now that I've got my Christian duty done, I can go live the rest of my life the rest of the six days. If Christ isn't permeating your heart, if you don't see yourself as the active hands and feet of Jesus every day, then we're doing this wrong. Then we're doing mere activity. We're appeasing a guilty sense in our conscience. We're not living faithfully on mission. When we view ourselves as church is a thing we do, church is the place we go. Here's the second idol that I see. Witness is something others do. This is pretty common, especially when you got a lot of activities happening in a Sunday or on a week-to-week basis. I'm in Bible study this night. I'm in church group this night. I help out with this organization on the other night. And you do a lot of spiritual feeding with a lot of people. And you look around, your whole group of friends are Christians just like you. And then when I'll say, hey, invite somebody new, you got to really jog your memory. Like, who do I even know that isn't a Christian? And that's the first sign that you're starting to veer into witnesses something others do, not me. Let me dispel that for you right now. If the Lord has saved you, if he's brought life to you through his Holy Spirit, he's placed you on mission. My job is primarily to help cultivate that within you. You're thinking, well, why don't you go meet people? I do. All the time. Because I wouldn't want to ask you to do something I'm not willing to do. But I'm doing it not on my own. I can't. He's equipped each of us. He's given his Holy Spirit to each of us. He's empowered each of us, strengthened each of us for the task at hand. And sometimes you're thinking, well, what does that even mean? What does that even look like? It starts with prayer. Lord, purpose me today. You know how many people we walk in and around, standing shoulder to shoulder, that we might have a conversation with? People that we bump into that we haven't seen in a while that we could repurpose to say, hey, how are you doing? 
spiritually? Moments at the grocery store, we're just standing in line, you got that really talkative person, you're like, I don't want to talk to you at all. But they're super needy, and the Lord might be processing some stuff there, right there, and you just need to be a person that knows him and shares him. Just a thought. And here's the last idol of safety, when his discomfort is somehow always wrong. You would never say this as a Christian. You never say, well, no, 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 discomfort is, of course, suffering is a part of how Jesus grows us. But in reality, discomfort is something you're running away from as fast as you can. I don't really like this group. I think I'm going to pull out. I don't really like this church. Pastor's asking me to do too many things. I don't really like this marriage. She's a bother. I don't really like this husband. He's a pain. And what we do is we begin to think that the God revolves around our desires and our wishes. And here's why we do this. And I'm not, again, I get it because I can struggle with this. We live in a culture that says you, 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 you. And anything that goes against you is wrong. Not just wrong, but dehumanizing. But the God of the Bible, he doesn't view it that way. He views all of life as worship around him. And sometimes suffering, sometimes discomfort, sometimes pain, sometimes those seasons where you're just wondering, why am I even here, God? Because he's using that season to grow you. If at the end of your life you got all the things you ever wished and wanted, you could tailor your story to exactly how you wanted it to be. I'd have this family, I'd live in this location, I'd have this many kids, I'd be, I, and, and this is how I'd weave it. And it looks really good, it looks really awesome. But there's just one problem in it. When you look in scripture and you look at those men and women who are most impactful in the kingdom of God, their stories never look like the fairy tale. The best men and women, their stories don't look at all like the fairy tale. In fact, oftentimes they look tragic. But here's the catch. Their contentment and joy is not found upon the whimsical nature of our emotions. It's rooted in him. A joy-filled life is not a life devoid of suffering. It's a life undone by grace. And if we live in the idol of safety, if we live with the idol of safety, church will become something we do, witness will become something others do, and we will pursue our comforts. That's what happens. It's not me saying, hey, I think this, no, this is literally what happens. You and I will become like Sardis. And does it work? What happens when we start going down this road? Well, let's go ahead and continue in our passage, verse 3. This is what Jesus says. He says, remember then what you have received and heard. Remember, remember the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep it and what? Repent. Repentance is a word that we are, you're going to hear a lot at Flatiron, and it's not because God is just harsh. No, God is wanting to free you from sin that's bound you. And the way he does that is through repentance. Repenting is something, is, is, is knowing that, okay, I was walking towards a path that, that had me as the start of it, and now I'm turning it towards Jesus, and he gets to define. It's one of the most freeing things a Christian can do. So he says, repent. If you will not wake up, if you will not open your eyes, I will come like a thief in the night. 
and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. You're like, man, when did Jesus start getting all hot and bothered? If you've been paying any attention, he's got some words to say. Because he cares about his church, and he cares about you. And when you care about somebody, you push and you say the hard thing. Here's the other thing that's happening. He's speaking to Sardis. And what's interesting about Sardis is Sardis is a town that sits on a coast, but it's a coast that really has a lot of high cliffs. And because it has a lot of high cliffs, they had built a uh, acropolis on top of these cliffs that made it even higher. And the assumption was no one would ever be able to take over this town because of these high cliffs. I think I got a picture of it. Okay, so these are kind of worn down, but you can imagine, you can kind of see in the distance the the topography of that area drops a bit. These walls would have been some 30, 40 feet taller and that thick of stone. And so the town of Sardis, the city of Sardis, had been around for ages by this point. Even when John's writing this letter, it had been around for about 800 years. It is an old, old, old city. In that time, there had only been two times where it was ever taken. Two moments in history that it had ever been overcome. And both times, it was by somebody, normally one or two people, who climbed over the wall that the Sardinians thought was impossible to pass. And here's what's happening. This is what Jesus is saying. Much like the city you live in in Sardis, you think you have fortresses and walls that no one can overcome. But I'm telling you, it will happen when you least expect it. And the people of Sardis would have known this. The people of Sardis would have understood exactly what Jesus was trying to tell them. Hey, you know those walls, you know those comforts, you know all those safety things that you've got around you thinking they're protecting you. When you least expect it, they will fail you. And all you have to do is look back in history and notice the two times. Both times it was because lack of diligence on the side of the city. Here's the big idea. The greatest threat to a Christian is not suffering. It's safety. And it's an idol of safety. It's the perception of safety. So here's my question for you. How do we begin to prioritize mission over safety? And to do that, we're going to look at another church. I'm going to ask you to turn with me. Chapter 2, verse 8. We're going to look at the church known as Smyrna. Smyrna is the antithesis of Sardis. And you'll see what I mean here as we read. Verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. This is Christ. I am the first, I am the last. I had died on that cross, John, and you saw me come back. Verse 9. To the church of Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Pause with me real quick. What's John getting at here? Effectively, what's happening within this town is you had a, a Jewish cohort uh, that initially the Christians would have been underneath that kind of umbrella of the Jews, and therefore they could worship the God of the Jews. But over time, especially around the time of the writing of this letter, the Jews had really began to push apart and push against the growing Christian church. And so there started to begin a lot of those freedoms that were given to the early Jewish church, the Christian church, were now starting to fray and go away. Which means Christians weren't able to worship in exactly the same ways with exactly the same freedoms as they once had. Verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. This is the words of Jesus. 
Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Did you catch the key to that? When I said suffering is the most dangerous thing, or not the most dangerous thing, but safety is, and I said, how do we live with mission over safety? Did you catch the key phrase? Be faithful unto death. That's the what. What does it look like to put mission above safety? It's to be faithful, no matter where that leads you. You're thinking, man, Brian, this is getting all sorts of dark. I don't know if you've looked out at the world around you. But for Christians to stand firm, they have to be pretty serious about their faith. Or we will get washed with the currents. And for the message of God to continue to transmit itself through the generations, we can't. We must be faithful. So Jesus is saying this, but here's a few things I want you to pick out. One, this church looks like it's dying, but it's very much alive. This church is under duress, but it's very much vibrant with the gospel. This church is the epicenter of suffering. And yet the Christian men and women there are joy-filled and purposed. The Christianity of America today often does not like to talk about the Smyrna's of the world. And the reason we don't like that is, is because we actually don't have to live that way currently. Now, if you were to walk into many nations, in fact, there are more, just statistically, there are more Christians dying for their faith today than at any point in history. You're thinking, how could that be? Well, part of it is the number of people, there's so many more people today on the world, that the percentage, even if it's smaller, equals a greater yield of Christians who are having to stand up for their faith and die for their faith. And you're thinking, my, my goodness, how, how do you even do that? Well, you do that by remaining faithful unto death. I'm going to give an example of one of these guys. In fact, it's pretty poetic because it happened to be a pastor who would have been at the church of Smyrna when John wrote this letter. The man there is Polycarp. He's an early church father, probably one of the, the first three that actually ministered during the first century of the church. When this letter came to Smyrna, Polycarp was in his 20s. He's a young man, and he's being taught by John, and then he'll eventually pastor in this church of Smyrna that's receiving the suffering. And he'll pastor for a number of years. In fact, some say upwards of 60 plus years this man would pastor at this church. He writes one of the first intact full letters we have to the Philippians. We actually use some of his earliest writings to help understand that when we canonize scripture, that, that, that these were the earliest texts that we could say, hey, this was already evidently being used as scripture by those within the church. So when people start to throw shade at, well, you know, you canonize the scripture and you know, 325 years later, it's like, no, we just gave clarity to what already was clear for those living then. That the words of Paul, the words of Christ, that the words of the apostle was indeed scripture. And what we see here at Polycarp is he's going to be a pastor until he's 86. At 86 and 155, there's a Diocletian kind of revolution that begins to take place. And they put a lot of interest on killing the Christians within that area. He's 86 at this time, and at 86, he ends up trying to flee the city only under the, the, the direct urging of his church. He doesn't want to go. 
He leaves some 50 miles away, and at that point, they find him. And as soon as the captors come in, he offers them food, and he offers them drink. He doesn't try to run. He doesn't try to hide. And here, we'll pick it up the story here. It's on the, the, the slide for you. The proconsul says to them, Polycarp, I will have respect for your old age. Just swear just once by the genius of Caesar, and I will immediately re- release you. And take a look at how Polycarp replies. 86 years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? At that point, the proconsul says, well, we've got animals. Are you sure you don't want to change your mind? He says, bring in the animals. They didn't have animals, so they, they used fire instead. He's like, hey, we're, we're at fire. We're going to go ahead and, and put you to a stake, and we're going to set this on fire. You still have time to recant. Are you sure you don't want to say anything else? All you have to do is say the words. All you have to do is just say the words. It's done for, and you can continue to do what you need to do, but we've satisfied the emperor's desires. Polycarp does not. And so he ends up going to the stake, and instead of being bound, he says, no, I will willingly suffer for my Savior. And they try to light the fire, and the fire takes, but the wind is blowing so much that it only partially burns him. And as it's burning him partially, he cries out, and I've got this on the screen, O Lord, Almighty God, the Father of thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of thee, I thank thee that thou hast taught me worthy this day. This hour to share the cup of thy Christ among the number of thy witnesses. The Roman soldier in that moment was so agitated and upset that this man was still worshiping as he's on fire that he takes a sword and he plunges it through his side. Polycarp is one of the first murders and martyrs within this season, early second century. But he was pastor of the church of Smyrna. He was pastor of where this letter was written. And I'm telling you, churches like Smyrna produce these men and women. Why? Because it's all for the glory of God. It's for his kingdom, not ours. The idle safety doesn't have any place How do you prioritize mission over safety? Be faithful to the end. Now, if you're asking the honest questions, then, and this is what I was asking, how in the world, Brian, how in the world do you do that? Well, normally, you know, this kind of like martyrdom stuff, it, it does happen, by the way, all over the world. It begins by recognizing when Jesus saves you, he also gives his Holy Spirit in you. Your strength alone will not carry you. Your strength alone is not going to see you through those darkest hours. His Spirit does. And if you don't believe me, let's look at the words of Jesus. Picking it up here, actually in the Gospel of John, because the same John that wrote the Gospel of John is writing Revelation, and here's what he says earlier in his Gospel Verse 18, if the world hates you, this is the words of Jesus, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Christian, do you know that? Like, I thought we were supposed to be winsome to the world. I thought we were supposed to reach the world. Yes. And it's going to hate you because you serve Jesus. Well, but, but, but my friends are cool with Jesus. They're just not cool with Christians. Then they're not cool with Jesus because he died for Christians. Well, sometimes Christians do dumb things. Welcome to humanity. Give me a group of people that don't do dumb things. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And at this point in time, if you're being honest with yourself, you're thinking, is this what I signed up for? Is this what I signed up for? I'm going to tell you right now, if your answer isn't to the glory of God wherever you want to go, I would ask you to really consider who you're serving. I can't know your heart. And I would never even try. The Lord knows people's hearts here. But yes, when Christ died for you, he bids you to come and die. Now, what I'm not saying is, you know, Seek out martyrdom because that's the highest form of living out your Christian walk. No. By God's grace, he's going to continue to give a lot of protection and favor to the church here in America. But if he doesn't, he's still the same God. If he doesn't, he's still the same king. If he doesn't, we still move with him. We don't bend the knee to anything else. We don't bend the knee to foreign adversaries. We don't bend the knee to foreign gods. We bend the knee to Christ alone. And here's how we do it. If you're thinking to yourself, hey, I, I want to believe that. I want to be like that. I want to be a, a person who's like Smyrna and not like Sardis, but I don't know if I have the strength. I don't either. But here's what I do know. The Holy Spirit within me will strengthen me for the time at hand. And how do I know that? Because I've seen it already in my life. Moments when I am mentally and emotionally at my weakest, that is when the Lord is most present and near. And he strengthens you for that task at hand if you're willing to receive you're thinking, this sounds wild. Well, take a look at verse 26 if you think that sounds wild. He says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Flat Iron Church. The way we don't become a dead church is living in the safety of idol or the idol of safety where church is somewhere we go, witness is something other people do, and discomfort is something that God would never plan for us. But simply not doing those things isn't enough. Simply not doing those things doesn't all of a sudden mean that you're going to be on mission with Jesus. Being on mission with Jesus means I trust him as my Lord and Savior. I trust him as king over my life, and I trust that the Holy Spirit is going to strengthen me for whatever task he has for me. And I'm going to walk forward in faith, faithful unto death. And if you struggle, if you think, well, I just don't think I'm there, here's the thing. He's not asking you to do the mental challenge. He's simply asking you to take your next step of faith. 
For some of you, that means staying in your marriage and not leaving. For some of you, that means really contemplating the jobs that he would have for you and whether or not you should stay and be a part of a healthy church, help move the gospel forward. For some of you, it's thinking even, hey, what should I do with my life? What should I do with my time? How should I purpose the free time I have? Maybe you find yourself an empty nester, nearing retirement or in retirement. How am I going to open my home? How am I going to pour into this next generation? How do I do that when I feel like I don't know much? Well, start there. Start with humility. You'll be amazed at how the Lord uses the humble. Some of you are wondering, well, what does it even mean to be on mission? How do, how do I even know what to do? What, is it, what does that even look like? The first thing is you open up your word of God and you say, Lord, let this be over me and not my own mind and my own conscience. Let this be over me more than my own emotion. Let this be the thing that rules me even more than my own thoughts. Why? Because your own thoughts will betray you. Your emotions will be cowardice. The word of God remains true and stands firm. And if it sounds like, wow, I think you're like, you're like getting pretty serious about this. Yes, I'm getting serious about this. Because if the church isn't serious, she goes one direction. And it's always and always to the direction of Sardis. You will die as a church, and you'll do church for a lot of people, and it's already dead. And I have no interest in doing that. None. And you shouldn't either. And in fact, I know many of you, you don't. It's what first drew you to Flatiron. It's what first brought you in these doors. You want to be a part of something that is alive. And I'm telling you, the alive path is painful, but it's worth it. And the Holy Spirit is what strengthens us in it. So let me move to my challenges. And this is for everyone. The first one is repent and believe in Jesus. You're like, well, I already believe in Jesus. Well, maybe we need to repent. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go before the Lord right now, and I just simply want you to get quiet with him. We're going to get a couple minutes just to pray quietly. Whoever does keys can come up and put a pad on. That's fine, or whatever that looks like. Musicians, do your thing. But I want to give time for us to actually go before the Lord and really, truly confess. Lord, where am I holding on to my safety where am I holding on to my comforts where am I holding on to me and here's what I want you to see as your pastor I'm going to do the same because I don't get a free pass I have to do the exact same Lord where do you want me to be more open to you more lowly before you more hurt because of the gospel Where's my pride started to come in? Where's your pride keeping you from entering it? Where's that desire for becoming this ideal that you have in your mind of what your life should look like and it's not submitted? It's not that the ideal is bad, but when you look at who the Lord has purposed, it's always the stories you would never tell for yourself. So we're going to do that right now. I'll come back and I'll end us with some prayer and then give an invitation for people to meet Jesus. But right now, just go before the Father and confess.
Lord Jesus, there are so many things that we fail in. So many good things that we've allowed to be God things in our heart. And we confess this to you now. And seek to repent, to turn away from them, and to turn back to you. But Lord, give us the strength because there's moments where we don't even know how to move forward or what that can look like. Jesus, may we not be people who look at the church as something we do, but as someone we are. Jesus, may we not look at witness as something others do, but something that we can't help but do. discomfort. May we be willing servants of you. Wherever you would lead us, wherever you would have us go, whatever you would purpose within our life, might we do it, trusting and knowing that you are good, that you are faithful. For the men and women in here who don't know you yet, Jesus, they're still struggling to see that you are grace and truth and light in a world of darkness, may they right now come to know you. May they right now confess their need for you. May they right now come to the end of their own self-effort and for the first time in their life, draw near to you, confessing you as King and Lord and Savior, confessing their sin before you, knowing that the blood that was shed on that cross covers it fully, knowing that by you we are now made right with God. Jesus, I don't want to see Flatiron become like Sardis, full of activities, but dead on the inside. And while I don't want truly persecution, Lord, I, I'd much rather have a heart of a church like Smyrna that produces men and women like Polycarp And I ask that now, in your name, Jesus, amen.